Hey there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people in direct consumer e-com and tech. I'm your host, Tim. So this is series two of 2021, and the subject I'll be exploring is something close to my heart, food and drink. Over the next six episodes, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the food and drink space to get their state of play, learnings from 2020, and predictions for this year and beyond. On this episode, I chat with Glenn Burrows, co-founder and CMO at The Ethical Butcher, a direct-to-consumer brand that connects customers with meat farmed using regenerative agricultural methods. We discuss how a vegetarian of 25 years came to co-found a butcher, the relevance of modern food labeling, challenging veganism, the benefits of pre-agriculture, and how a mildly lubricated Facebook post turned into an accidental viral hashtag movement. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, Tim. Um, I'm very well, thank you. And I am currently in Alperton, which is in our production unit. Oh, okay. And talk to me a little bit about where, where exactly is that? I'm, I'm not so familiar with the geography. So uh, we're in a converted uh, shop, which we turned into a butchery plant and cold store. And Alperton is kind of where the North Circular meets the A40. So it's uh, uh, a lot of people know a landmark called the Ace Cafe, and we're sort of behind there. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. In, in London. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. There you go. Um, I'm, I'm keen to sort of usually start these things by a bit of a rewind. Uh, and I'm curious. I know you've been asked this question before, but I, I'm curious <laughs> as to how a vegetarian of 25 years came to be one of the founders of an ethical butcher. Can you, can you talk <laughs> to me about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So, um, I originally studied uh, food science and nutrition with a view, the degree was actually sort of a, a marketing degree and it had lots of options going through it for, um, you know, for, for taking different modules. And I just picked kind of food, 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 food all the way. And I realized in my degree that it was very much leading me into a world of industrial food. So I was learning how to make kind of ultra palatable foods such as, you know, how to put things in Pringles that mean that once you open the packet, you finish them. Uh, you know, all the, all the balancing of the chemicals that would have different effects in different mm -hmm. parts of your brain so that you kind of what people would compulsively overeat. And um, yeah, I, I kind of thought <laughs> this isn't really what I wanted to do. You know, I was kind of interested in food, but um, uh, this, this felt like being interested in tricking people and fake food. But really, the turning point of that was uh, in the end of the first year of my degree, I learned about a process called mechanically reclaimed protein, where abattoir waste uh, was being ground up and fed back to um, grazing animals such as cows and uh, sheep. And this was basically feeding their own kind back to um, herbivorous animals. Um, and it was a absolutely abhorrent process that was causing a disease mutation um, 
which ended up kill, killing 170 people in the UK. And this was the mad cow disease um, uh, scandal. Wow. And this was, this was 1989. And I had no idea. I had no idea that we were doing these absolutely abhorrent things with animal carcasses and treating, treating the animals we're eating with such little respect. And that was it really. That, that was it for me, not just in terms of not eating meat, but actually deciding that I didn't really want to work in that industry. And I became vegetarian while I was still doing my degree and sort of finished my degree feeling quite disillusioned with, you know, the thing I'd chosen to study. And um, that led me to think, well, you know, I need to kind of find something else to do. I'd always been a, I'd always, you know, enjoyed photography as a hobby. And I ended up following that into a career. Um, and after 25 years, I, in my photography career, I, I kind of gravitated towards a commercial photographer. So I ended up shooting uh, a lot of advertising and uh, magazine work. Mm -hmm. And I seemed to specialize in kind of sport, health, fitness, and bodies. I, you know, I, I shot everything from La Senza to men's health, men's fitness, uh, Nike campaigns, uh, Reebok campaigns, that sort of thing. So I was always dealing with athletes generally and, and models and people who are very concerned about their physical well-being and shape and body composition and I think I was in my I was in my mid 40s and I asked the question that a lot of people do at that sort of age is am I as well as I could be am I as well as I should be mm -hmm. and I was very active I was doing a lot of sport I was you know I got two black belts in martial arts I just started rock climbing I was I was doing a lot but I wasn't really making much progress and I had a few kind of niggling health things that I thought shouldn't happen I started to get, you know, uh, some autoimmune conditions and brain fog. I wasn't really putting on any muscle. My digestion was terrible. My sleep wasn't great. My energy was like completely yo-yoing. And I had a few friends who were also long-term vegetarians who had come out of it saying, hey, I started eating meat again. I followed like a more paleo kind of diet and every, everything's changing for me. And why don't you look into it? Read a few books, decided to make a change. And it was like someone had twitched a light on it was totally transformative with cutting out a lot of the sugars and the grains and the sort of fake meat and the tofu and things like mm. that and just eating real foods I, I i honestly felt like i was being kind of reborn in terms of my health so after that very very long period of not eating meat though i was very concerned about where i was getting meat from mm -hmm. and you know the the provenance and the impact was really important to me and the more I dug into it, the more I realized that it was a very kind of murky world and that the industry was, you know, did a lot to try and hide what, you know, hide the provenance of, of what they're trying to sell you. And there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of, there's a lot of nonsense fl flying around. Uh, a lot of the terms like, you know, grass fed and free range are pretty much meaningless once you start digging into them. Um, but this was just, you know, like a personal, you know, personal journey really. Uh, and I was, still working in in the you know I was still a photographer I was the picture editor of men's fitness magazine and with my kind of newfound knowledge I was talking to a lot of people on my shoots about nutrition and food and you know diet and a lot of people were sort of coming around to this idea of a whole foods diet involving animal mm -hmm. products and plants and uh and uh you know it was, it was a really interesting place to be examining all that and at that time I simply met my co-founder Farshad he was needing a film for crowdfunding. I got introduced by a mutual friend and the whole idea of the ethical butcher 
came from uh, came from our discussions about what are we going to do with his new business, and I ended up getting so sucked into just the filmmaking that I got pulled into being a co-founder of the business. Wow. <laughs> That was quite the journey. So I suppose for those that, that don't know, can, can you just tell me very, very quickly, because we're going to explore it in a little bit more detail, like sure. what, what is the ethical butcher, you know, um, sort of in, in a few words? Okay. Yeah. We're uh, an online e-commerce business based on the Shopify platform. And we source meats that have been raised as much through regenerative agriculture or extremely low impact agriculture as possible. From across the UK, we've got really strict standards of what we will and won't accept. Uh, we buy the animals uh, from, from the farms um, via the abattoirs. We bring them into London, we cut them, pack them, and send them out to the whole country uh, to our customers uh, via DPD overnight. So we're, we're an e-coms business selling ethically sourced meat. And I know that um, the, the sort of concept had been around for a while, but you know, you launched in, in 2020. So just talk me through a little, uh, or talk me uh, through kind of those early stages in 2018, when you'd met Farshad and you were trying to sort of, I suppose, give birth to this business. What, how <laughs> did things go to plan? What like hurdles did you kind of face or was it, you know, super smooth? How did that run? No, I mean, it, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't super smooth. Um, the plan seemed to change quite dramatically for me because I was just kind of hired originally to make a film uh, for this guy. <laughs> and then, um, he started to realize I had a real passion for the subject because of my personal journey. And also, you know, Farshad, he's, he's Iranian. English is a second language. He's very smart. He studied law and, um, you know, he's worked in the meat industry for a while, but he's not... You know, he, he didn't feel as qualified as he thought I was to stand up in front of people and, and you know, and uh, tell them about this new business we're doing. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, look, I'll, uh, I'll give you equity, give you equity in the company, come along as my co-founder, but I want you to go and do all the talking. Yeah. So, so we, we started going to uh, fundraising events together and we started talking to people about our idea for the business. Um, we set up all the social channels and I started running those and, you know, with the social channels, particularly before we had a business and, um, and uh, anything to sell, I could afford to be quite provocative and I could afford to really dig deep into asking the questions about whether, you know, vegetarianism, veganism really is as ethical as, you know, its proponents consider it to be compared to uh, well-raised meats and, you know, just really not be afraid of dealing with every last tiny detail of the, of the pros, cons, arguments for and against. So I, I became really immersed in the business actually from sort of 2018 until 2020. Um, and we launched our, crowd, our first crowdfunding campaign and we, we had to really try hard. We were an untested business. Mm. Uh, it was an untested concept as well. And it was really difficult, you know, to get people to invest. And interestingly, I think every investment except for one that was over ten thousand pounds came from farmers. Mm, and the only other, the only other ten thousand pound investment was a vegan guy who thought that what we were doing was better for the planet. <laughs> so that's a great, so that's, that's a great little review and case study. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, w when we finally raised our money, um, it was farmers who who were doing these incredible rewilding natural methods of farming you know they were using the animals to restore habitats and restore biodiversity 
um, and were farming in this incredibly high quality natural way. And a lot of them were just selling their products back into Morrison's and places like that. They had, they had no route to market. Um, and so they saw us coming along with our sort of pedigree of, you know, London advertising, you know, sensibilities. Yep. And yep. just thought, this is it. This is my route to market. This is how I can get a premium and get the recognition for what I'm doing. So they were all the people who funded our business, really, on, on, on a big scale. So, yeah, we, we, we did our crowdfunding 2018 to 2019. We just squeaked over the line of the money we were trying to raise, which is about uh, just over £300,000. Yep. And then it took us a while to actually find a space and build a website. And, you know, the, the web build took months and months and months. And I had to photograph all the product and, uh, you know, write the copy and, you know, look at the UX and the structure and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the physical premises and, you know, getting the staff. And we launched in February 2020, which is about three weeks before lockdown 1.0. <laughs> We'll we'll get to that in in a okay. bit. I, I I'd love to I'd love to just sort of like um, uh, focus on a couple of the things that you talked about there, more around the the, the business model and how you work with your suppliers. So I, I'm really keen to understand like how do you kind of find the suppliers? Because my sense is based on what you just said there, this kind of um, regenerative type farmer already existed and they had products, but it was difficult for them to get to to the consumer. And so you guys kind of came along and 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 help them with that but uh, is there an abundance of these sorts of farmers are they a minority you know how do you how do you um, it, go about it is it relationship based or you know how does that work so they are absolutely a minority and in fact i think the last time i, I kind of looked for a hard figure on this it was about 1.5 percent of beef production would would actually make would meet our standards um and that is to say so to, to backtrack a little bit, your your first question was how did we find them? So we started out by looking for an looking uh, working with an organisation called the PFLA or the Pasture Fed Livestock Association, uh, and this is a, a certification body that exists simply because there is a, a loophole in DEFRA's food labelling, considering uh, concerning grass fed meat. Uh, so DEFRA produced this huge document uh, which is the UK food labeling kind of manifesto, if you like. And in there, there's a single line uh, that said, meat can be sold as grass fed if the diet of the animal was predominantly grass. So you have cattle and sheep, which are being fed grain and even soybeans, um, you know, even Brazilian soy, which can be sold as grass fed because the majority of the diet was on grass. So, I mean, this is really very, very misleading to the public. And because of this, uh, this organization called the PFLA set out a set of standards, meaning that if it's grass-fed, it needs to be 100% grass-fed, um, raised only on pasture. Got it. So th this, was our, this was our kind of a baseline, if you like, our starting point. And these guys, you know, I think when we, when we first started looking, they had about 70 farms. And some of those farms were, had like four cows and some had like... <laughs> You know, so, so some of them were, were really small holes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, had four cows, two sheep and a, and a chicken. And, and it was like, you know, um, it's somewhere in mid Wales. So, you know, a lot of them, there's no way we could get any supply from them. But there were, there were enough who were scaling up and, you know, that organization has grown and grown and grown. And when we started talking to people within that organization, we started to become aware of 
the members who were going beyond simply grass feeding and were looking at methods of keeping the animals that could regenerate the landscape. Mm -hmm. And by that, we mean improve biodiversity and improve uh, the levels of soil carbon. And so is your sense that like with this model and obviously what you guys have done that you will increase the number of suppliers or do you think it's more likely that you've got enough now and obviously they've got this direct consumer channel and you'll just continue working with them? So we will both increase the number of suppliers and increase the supply volume that our suppliers have. So the great, the great thing about this model and um, uh, probably a really good example of this is one of our early investors um, who's a supplier, it's a farmer called Neil Harley. And he's supplying us, um, you know, we get a lot of supply from him and he's grazing, he's grazing cattle. And he's taken over new farms, which are currently arable, and they've been arable for decades. And after decades of being what we call conventional arable, which is a very chemically dependent system. So you're growing, you know, barley, maize, you know, corn, wheat, um, potatoes on, on rotation. And after decades and decades of doing that, the soil gets very kind of tired and thin and, yep. you know, there's not, not much nutrition there anymore. So they're having to use an increasing amount of fertilizer year on year. And he's taking spaces like that and sowing pasture and putting them back into being, um, in, in, back into pasture and grazing them. And the action of the animals speeds up the process of restoring the quality, quantity, and carbon of the soil. Um, so, you know, the easiest thing is really for exist farmers who are doing this to keep doing it and, and to do it on more land. Um, but also, yeah, we were just at a festival called Groundswell uh, a few days ago, last week, which was uh, a sort of festival and conference all about regenerative agriculture. And it's had this year had three and a half thousand people attending most of whom were you know farmers looking for better ways of doing things so the, the whole notion and the whole idea is as as it becomes more proven more and more people are taking it on and it's such a simple thing it, it, you know particularly for, for raising animals is that when, when you get the system working properly uh, the only inputs are sunlight and rainwater there's you know you don't need you don't have feed bills you don't have so many vet bills you don't you know the, the animals keep themselves so they're alive for a lot longer so there's a lot longer before the farmer gets his return on on the investment but the costs just drop to almost nothing and um w when i was researching for the podcast i um i came across a a, a, a term which i feel maybe is what you've just described but i'd love to sort of like uh, sort of deep dive on a little bit more but holistic management techniques in farming. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about here? And can you maybe explain that a little bit more to me? It is, yes. So holistic management is one of many uh, techniques which could be considered a form of regenerative agriculture. There, there are many other things that you can do, but holistic, holistic management or holistic plant grazing is, um, uh, comes from a system developed by a guy called Alan Savory. And we can't, we won't have too much time to dig into the whole system, but it's basically a, a decision-making process that goes through all aspects of, of land management, including economic and, you know, and everything. But what, it, what the practice of that entails is actually trying to mimic the movement of large herb, herds of grazing herbivores across the land. Mm -hmm. So 
if you can imagine before before we built fences and had mm-hmm. you know and, and had fields yep. um, and it's probably easier to imagine it on the great plains of america where for you know the the prairies which which would have covered much you know southern canada and northern <laughs> northern america there's a huge area of of natural grassland where the action of grazing animals over over hundreds of thousands of years created you know in some places six to 12 feet of topsoil uh, and the reason for this is that when you have a large when you have natural predators within a system the animals will stick together in a tight bunch and move frequently so when they're on the land they, they're grazing it quite hard they're fertilizing it quite thoroughly and they're trampling on it quite hard but then they're moving on so what the farmers are doing is mimicking this within fields so you might have 50 cows in a 50 acre field but you keep them in one acre paddocks and move them every single day so it's 50 days before they get back to the bit of land that they're on just for one day and what happens is they cause a massive growth in, in of everything of plants which brings in pollinated insects which brings in you know different trophic levels of an ecosystem so you're creating the perfect conditions for more life on on this land by by managing grazing animals that, i mean that's it in a nutshell really. yeah that's fascinating i mean it's, it's so interesting that there's we're in 2021 and 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 sort of uh using concepts that are pre-agricultural revolution you know like 12 15,000 it. it's so interesting yeah it's so you've interesting. absolutely nailed it i mean that's it it's pre we're going back to pre-agriculture you said it in a really good way i'm, I'm really pleased to pick up on that it's basically we're going hang on we've led ourselves into a cul-de-sac of you know of non-sustainability by trying to control nature when we actually work with nature everything works it's like duh. um <laughs> yeah um you you mentioned the terms before and and i'd love to sort of pick up on 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 something that i've certainly observed as a consumer and i'm sure many 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 people have but terms like organic grass-fed cruelty-free <laughs> seem to be everywhere in fact i picked up some eggs from the co-op this morning that were plastered with organic <laughs> however how realistic is is this labeling you kind of mentioned it before with some of the kind of like the bodies that are responsible for some of this stuff and and do you think it is it relevant to like a modern consumer yeah some some is some isn't and out of the ones that you've mentioned i think cruelty free is is meaningless um grass-fed is fairly meaningless because of the defra loophole unless it says 100 percent grass-fed that's different organic is not bad in terms of if you had to pick organic or non-organic, I'd say definitely probably go for the organic. I think it's more important for uh, for vegetables, interestingly, than meat, because, you know, you could still have, I you know, I, I believe that cattle and grazing animals such as cattle and sheep shouldn't be fed grains, but you can have organic beef if it's eaten organic wheat. Um, but that still produ- produces, in my opinion, an inferior product compared to non-organic grass-fed beef. So there's so many kind of nuances to this. And really the industry will do whatever they can to twist the rules to as far as it possibly can if it involves either saving money or making money. Um, so it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard question to, to answer, but um, some of it's completely nonsense. Some of it is, is, is less important than you might believe. 
And I think I saw uh, on something else you were talking on or something I've read that you had written, but get, getting back to that kind of grass fed ratio, am I right in saying when they say that it's predominantly like that's like 51%, so 49% can be kind of anything else, is that it, it, what well, they consider it? it? It could be. Yeah, absolutely. Le legally that, that could absolutely be the case. But um, the other thing to remember in that is that it's, it's based on time, not body weight. So yeah, I mean, you could have a, a a cow that uh, the cow puts on most of its weight when it's eating grains in the shed not when it's in the fields with its family oh, it so you know so even if it's 40 60 probably the majority of the weight of the cow has been produced by grass feed by grain feeding and the reasons for not feeding grains to the animals uh it's it's kind of threefold really it's it's the fact that you're you're not allowing the animals to eat their natural diet, which means they're not having the interaction with the land that get, gives the benefits to the land, which, which is, you know, the things I described earlier with holistic management is that the grazing animals, what they're effectively doing is they're recycling nutrition and they do it an awful lot faster than any vegetable based process can, can do it. So there's this uh, method of farming, which is called veganic farming, where no animals or no animal fertilizers are used. And it's all about sort of composting things, but it takes 10 times longer to compost um, veganically than it does to allow the nutrition to pass through the digestive system of an animal. It's an incredibly efficient way of restoring ecosystems and soil health. So first of all, by grain feeding, you're removing that part of the process. Secondly, you're, uh, you're having to transport the grains and you're having to grow them separately, which is, you know, which is not a good thing uh you know you're you're keeping a demand for soya meal being used um and there's very little soy actually fed to fed to beef but there is you know some in the dairy industry for sure um but also it's not natural for cows to eat grains it creates a acid, an acidic environment in their rumen um which has to be uh, adjusted to and often when that happens when that adjustment happens it creates ulcers and then they need antibiotics and uh it's quite uncomfortable for them while that happens so it's um and also the other aspect is the you know the nutritional quality for us changes so mm. grass-fed beef has a higher level of omega-3 lower level of omega-6 fatty acids than um uh than grain-fed which tends to be higher omega-6 lower omega-3 lower conjugated linoleic acids just it's not the the product isn't as nutritious either so you've got the animal welfare the environmental aspect and the human nutrition eating qualities are, are all um negatives on grain fed and you touched on it before however i'd like to sort of revisit and and deep dive um again as a consumer i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> Uh, that the rise of veganism, flexitarianism, even kangatarianism <laughs> is, 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 is happening. So, so I'd love to understand from your perspective, like, do you see this as an advantage or do you see it as a challenge in what you guys are trying to achieve? Both. Um, absolutely both. Um, the problem, one of the great things about veganism <laughs> For our business not you know not for any other reason is that it has such a high failure rate so a lot of people who fail as vegans will become ethical omnivores uh, whereas they might have started out as an as a very bog standard omnivore eating a diet that's you know uh, from industrial agriculture so they make a decision to go vegan uh, they 
fail at veganism for various reasons and come back to, you know, a lot of people, a lot of our customers have tried plant-based diets mm-hmm. for, for all the right reasons. You know, they've, they've been fed the information that they believe that that's the right thing to do. They haven't seen regenerative agriculture as an alternative. They've tried, they've failed. They've, they've kind of found our way of doing things. But the problem, the, the, the downside, the problem with veganism is that it is being heavily pushed and manipulated by the food industry um, because there's way more profit in selling a burger made from monocrop soybeans than there is from grass-fed beef. Often they're more expensive and the inputs are, are, are ridiculously cheap compared to farming an animal well. So people are being conned basically by the food industry. Um, you know, people are, people, there's no better way of putting it. The, the, the vegan movement is a big con by the food industry. Um, and it's conning people by really tapping into that sort of basic human instinct of wanting to do something better, of, of wanting to not hurt the planet. And it seems so obvious, you know, I, I like animals. I like animals to exist. I want them to be around, so I'm not going to eat them. Uh, because eating them means you have to kill them but that is such a top line thought and when you dig a bit deeper it, it's kind of it's pretty much opposite the opposite because you know the death of one cow provides a thousand human meals um if you look at how many a- other animals die to produce a thousand human meals on a plant-based diet it's far more than one and if that cow's kept in a regenerative system where other animals live because of the action of that grazing herbivore on the land you get into a negative number of animal deaths per you know per thousand calories so the nuances between the diets and the reasons for doing it need a lot more examination people are lazy uh people read memes not articles um social media is very powerful and the food industry loves veganism and that brings me on to well, it's a good segue into um, something I wanted to discuss, and that is the hashtag Regenuary. Regenuary? Regenuary. Am I saying that right? Regenuary. You, you are, yeah. yeah, yeah. Regenuary. Yeah, right. T- tell me all about it. Like, where is it at? How did it start? And yeah, <laughs> g- 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 give, me, give, me the, give me the lowdown. This is how I accidentally started a, a hashtag movement by writing a, 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 a angry and mildly lubricated Facebook post. So um, I would mildly <laughs> lubricated. Yeah. I was out. In, uh, this was right. It was before we launched a business. Um, this was the December before, so it would have been uh, it would have been in 2019. I was out in central London. I was obviously at the time very well researched on all these matters, and I spending way too much time arguing with vegans online. And I was in central London. Christmas shopping or something and I remember seeing all of these posters everywhere for Veganuary and it was you know I'd seen it before and I'd seen the movement before but it seemed to be even bigger and there seemed to be more mainstream and by mainstream I mean I was seeing it from places like KFC and Domino's Pizza and um, it just started really really irritating me really getting under my skin I, I have absolutely no problem with the concept of somebody wanting to do less harm in the world and wanting to make the world a better place but the methodology of, of, of the, the thought of kfc which is responsible for mass factory farming of chickens with terrible levels of animal welfare doing a vegan burger and tapping into that it just made me sick and angry 
And I just thought, how dare you? How, first of all, how dare you do this total greenwashing exercise? And how dare Veganuary allow a brand such as KFC to use their name? You know, so anyway, I, I was pretty wound up. I, pretty, I, I, came, I came home, uh, poured myself a glass of wine and just sort of wrote a slightly ranty Facebook post. Um, as I'd done so many other times before um, and just sort of clicked send and went to bed and didn't think too much about it. And it just went absolutely mental. By the end of the month, it had a million impressions and you know, 5,000 comments on, on my post shared, I think four and a half thousand times, get, getting another 17,000 comments and it started kind of trending. And, and really what the post was about was saying, instead of Veganuary, how about if anyone who is thinking of going vegan for a month just try to source their food for that month from regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. keeping it as local and sustainable and low impact as possible uh, instead of eating fake vegan crap um, and then going back to an omnivorous diet in february uh, and, and i argued that you could actually do more harm than good by uh, joining in veganuary than if you tried to source regeneratively for a month. But what what stirred everybody up was the fact that I crossed out the word veganuary. <laughs> on, oh, on really? The, on the that, that was what? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was it. That was it. It was the crossed out veganuary uh, that just was like a, it was like lighting the, you know, the, the touch paint set everybody off. I'm curious then, because obviously there was there was a hive of activity. What, what what were some of the comments like? Can you do you remember any um, that stood out? Uh, yeah, um, I mean it ranged from. So I, I I would say that the comments were pretty fifty fifty split between support and and not support, and a lot of the support was super interesting because people were saying things like, "Oh, I really agree with everything you said, and and I really agree with everything you're arguing," but. I just wasn't brave enough to say it because you know how the vegans are. And I'm like thinking, oh my God, we really got into a place where people are too afraid to debate each other because of, you know, this, this kind of belief system and, and the dogmatic approach to veganism. And then the things, the, the non-supportive comments ranged from, can you explain a bit more about what you mean through to full on no nonsense death threats. Wow. Death um, threats. Yeah, hope you effing die of cancer. You um, <laughs> see, star, star, star was was a common one. Um, you know, wow. uh, I mean, and you just think, hang on, this is somebody who has taken a stance of veganism out of compassion and to do least harm, and they think it's okay to send me a direct message on social media saying things like that. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary. That that is so so yeah and 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 tell me about where it's at now because that, that the 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 hashtag regenerary is on the on the site so it, it it's something that's con continued on as a I suppose a it is well yeah or... yeah so it had so that was the first year was 2020 and then in 2021 uh, as we're leading through 2020 we're getting towards winter and Christmas and we were absolutely slammed with business um, we just change PR agencies, we, we kind of started, we're like, oh yeah, we're January, we should probably do something. And it was, but you know, we were trying to just get the orders out the door for Christmas. And we're, we're you know, we've been running a business through a pandemic. So um, everything was a bit crazy. We were understaffed, overworked, all the rest of it. And it was kind of in late in December, you know, Christmas was starting to kind of look like we were going to manage. And uh, 
it was the guys that look after our social media just said, can we, can we kind of revisit it? You know, should we just put a couple of posts up? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let, let's, you know, let's, let's just kind of go at it again. So we put a few posts up and, and this time decided to do it on Instagram rather than Facebook, because we found that we Instagram translated more directly to sales and it was more the people that were on there for our business tended to be more UK based, whereas Facebook was a bit more international. So we thought, okay, we'll focus a bit more on Instagram this time put a couple of posts up to a similar, on, on a very similar note to the previous years. And again, just sent them on a Friday night. And by Sunday night, we'd gone from 12,000 to 25,000 followers. So we doubled our followers in 48 hours on social media. And, um, and I then basically had to ba- take all of January off to manage the campaign because I was interviewed at least once every single day. And, and I mean, every single day uh, five days a week i was doing one to four different interviews and the interviews were everything from a podcast such as this through to uh national press radio phone-ins um even people's dissertations who are writing psychology dissertations at oxford university on you know on on uh belief systems around food and diet wow all kinds of stuff all kinds of stuff blogs podcasts you know articles uh, and it was everything, national press, food press, and everybody wanted a lot. The national press, interestingly, all they wanted was uh, they wanted to talk about something other than uh, veganuary, unused gym memberships and, uh, you know, and a week off booze. They wanted some good news. Um, you know, so my, my thing is saying, well, yeah, actually eat more red meat and just source it well, I think was, was the compelling, uh, compelling story for the press. But it, again, it was still really more of a just an idea. and. Um, I presented Regenuary at Groundswell Festival, which is last week. Um, and my aim really is by 2022 to turn it into a much more actionable movement. Yep. So um, to start, I've separated Regenuary.com and I'm going to separate it from the ethical butcher. I want to get other butchers involved. I want nice. to get other, yep. uh, you know, I, I want it to become something that's much bigger than an idea created by my company. Um, wow. And, and also make it actionable for people following a plant-based diet as well and say, look, you know, it really matters. It matters more how your food is grown than what you choose to eat. Um, so I'm, I'm really working hard now to try and find growers and products which, which are non-meat, non-dairy, which are regenerative. And it's much, much, much harder to find arable foods, uh, plant-based crops, which have been grown in a regenerative way that are still traceable um, and haven't ended up in a product. So, you know, a lot of farmers are growing uh, no-till wheat, for example, but it's going into the mass market. So it gets diluted down with everything else and you can't go and buy a no-till loaf of bread very easily at all. So I'm really now, the next sort of six months, uh, five months, I'm really trying to dig deep and build out an actionable directory where people can sign up and say, you know, I'm going to pledge to do the best yeah. I can to be regenerative or low impact for January. And we're going to keep it. People have said to me, you know, why don't you move it to like June or something when there's more produce available? And and, and actually, despite the, the, the despite the way that it stirred up the vegans through my challenging of veganuary, I mean, veganuary should be veganuary really because there's a lot more products available. And the very fact that it is in January means that if anyone's trying to be vegan in January, they are definitely going to be eating very heavily imported foods and very highly processed foods. There's no way around it. 
Mm. So it, it's a direct challenge to that mindset of animal agriculture equals bad, any plant agriculture equals good. It's, it, it has to, we have to break that down. And you, you, you've touched on it um, slightly, and, and I did say that we would, we would come to it at some point during the discussion, um, and now I think it's a good time to do that. So just talk me through uh, 2020 in terms of maybe how you and the team adapted and like what observations did you see given this um, slightly unusual calendar year? <laughs> yes, that's a good way of putting it. So the, the big, I'm just going to turn off my email so it stops pinging. Um, sure. So the biggest, uh, the biggest difference was we launched the business on the back of Farshad's existing business, which was a very successful uh, supply to the restaurant industry. And of course, with lockdown, that stopped immediately overnight with the first lockdown in March. And then really was very sporadic in, in its um, opening in between the lockdowns throughout the rest of the year. But what we didn't expect was how quickly our B2C offering, which is the ethical butcher, would just would pick up. Um, but the difficulty is when a restaurant orders, puts an order in, they'll just go, yeah, I need like 20 chicken breasts and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and 100 burgers. When a customer orders, they want like two chicken breasts and three wings and two burgers and, you know, four steaks. And so packing the same volume of orders for customers compared to restaurants is exponentially more difficult. And particularly at Easter, there was, yeah, there's times where we couldn't, we didn't have enough staff. We had to shut the website down twice to, to stop taking orders because we just couldn't, we just couldn't cope. We couldn't actually get the stuff in boxes and out to the customers. And at this time, we we're pretty much only selling beef and lamb because I wasn't able to talk, to visit farms to figure out if there's people farming poultry or pork in the ways that I thought they should be done. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we could get the accreditations of like PFLA uh, could could sort of provide that for the beef and lamb. So we, we were pretty much just selling red meat at that stage with very little chicken um, and no pork at all. And we might still managed to kind of have a successful business. But yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a ridiculous learning curve, some very, very long hours. Uh, <laughs> a couple of times at Farshad actually, he made a bed out of our wool cool packaging um, in the front office and, and actually just had two hours sleep and started again. Uh, so it was a classic kind of startup tales of, um, you know, of 20 hour days and things. But, um, you know, we're, we, uh, we learned a lot and we, we sort of accelerated that learning curve. I think you'll, uh, you'll look back in 2023 and um, laugh at that sort of stuff, you know, like I'm sure it was very stressful at the time, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great one for the memoirs and the, the, the podcasts <laughs> that happen in 2023 and beyond. Um, I'd like to sort of take a step back and pose a slightly, um, I suppose, philosophical question. <laughs> sure. and I'd, I'd love to understand, you know, cause we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, uh, agricultural techniques, consumerism, um, the impact of, of, of 2020. There's been, it's been a, it's been a rich discussion. I find, um, I'd love to understand from your perspective, like what do you think would have the biggest impact on the world? If, if we were to change one element of our food consumption? Uh, simply there needs to be a consumer driven demand for, for more regeneratively produced foods. It's as simple as that, that what happens in the fields comes from what the customers are asking for. 
Uh, and if the customers are educated enough to ask for things to be produced in a regenerative system, then the farmers will do it. Uh, and, 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 that, and that applies to absolutely everything. The industrial agriculture, both animal and plant, is destroying the planet, destroying our soils, um, destroying ecosystems. And we just have to farm in ways that are more concurrent with nature's processes than human processes. Simple as that. Do you think then we will get to that point? And if so, when? It's, it's slowly building. Uh, and I was at a conference, as I said uh, last week, called Groundswell, which is a conference aimed primarily at farmers. Um, and I think there's a bit of a gap. There's a, there's a, I was there, but there were members of the public at this, at this festival conference as well. But this is going to sound like a really weird thing to say, but I still think there's a gap between agriculture and food. And agriculture is basically producing food. Um, my first thought at, at Groundswell was, I mean, it was an incredible place to be. It was, it was so good to be around people, to feel like we're part of a movement and part of, um, part of a, a change that, that's coming from the fields that you know, farmers are looking to farm in more nature-friendly ways and they're looking at how they can measure biodiversity and improve biodiversity and you know, make the landscape a better place. But there is an, there's a disconnect there between the methods of agriculture and fine food, like the best tasting, most nutritious produce in the entire country is coming from these guys doing these methods. And there was no link there. So if you could combine something like Taste of London with Groundswell Festival, so you get 5,000 mm. people who love their food yep. come to a festival where all the cooks and the chefs and the restaurant chains, I think the only sort of chef of any significance that was re represented there was Thomasina Myers from Oaxaca, yeah. the founder yeah. of Oaxaca. And, and she was there and she gave a talk and she was talking about different things. But in, in my opinion, and there were so many talks about like soil ecology and, you know, how to compost and worms and, you know, dung beetles and carbon tax and credits and all this kind of th stuff. But there should have been an equal number of chefs doing demonstrations, yep. talking about why yep. grass fed beef is better and why heritage grains are better and why no tilled potatoes are better for the planet. And then if you could combine a food festival with an agricultural festival, people would make that link they'd know what to start asking for. And, and that, that, in my opinion, is, is the missing link here. Um, there's, there's too big a gap between agriculture and food. So it's your last supper. <laughs> the, 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 the reason is, remains unknown. But the, uh, we, we, you can either cook at home or you can go to a restaurant. Um, I'd love to understand like which, which one would you choose and kind of what's on the menu? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm trying to think of, I have to be, I have to be honest, I'd probably pick, um, I'd probably pick a very high end uh, sushi. That's <laughs> fine. So, so I thought you were going to say KFC, but then uh, no, yeah, no. Because, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd probably go to like, um, I don't know. I, I think some of the most memorable meals I've had were at um, a place called Matsuhisu in LA, which is, nobu's original restaurant where ah, it's, so, so it's nice. like nobu but much less fussy it's kind of paper tablecloth but um nobu sauce foods and i don't eat a lot of seafood and when i do i absolutely love it um and um yeah i think i think my last supper would have to be somebody else cooking and probably something along those lines japanese 
I think that's a great place to end the podcast. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me. That was amazing. Thank you very much for having me, Tim, and really appreciate uh, you giving me a voice. There you go. Massive thank you to Glenn for joining me. You can check them out at ethicalbutcher.co.uk or find them using hashtag Regenuary. Before I go, a quick word for my sponsor, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do the same. I'll see you next time. Taking notes to the